Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Professional AF. My name is Diana Kander and my how I have missed you. This season was inspired by a class that I was asked to create for a university on failure. And I used every single one of these interviews to learn more about the subject matter and really formulate some interesting hypotheses that I'll share throughout the season. So half the interviews are going to be from thought leaders like Kristen today. And then the other half are going to be after action reviews with folks who were at the front lines of very public projects that didn't exactly work out. It's going to be an amazing season, and I'm so grateful that you're here for it. Now, today's guest, Kristen Ulmer, is a fear and anxiety expert. Her education on this subject comes from practical, real-world experience, starting with being a mogul specialist on the U.S. ski team. Kristen then became more recognized as being the best female big mountain extreme skier in the world, a status that she kept for 12 years. Known for big cliff jumps and if you fall, you die descents, she became sponsored by the likes of Red Bull, Ralph Lauren, and Nikon, and was inducted into the Hall of Fame September of 2019. Her mastery of other dangerous sports, including paragliding, ice and rock climbing, kiteboarding, adventure mountain biking, and flying trapeze, also gained her the outdoor industry vote as the most extreme, fearless woman athlete in North America. Today, we're discussing Kristen's book, The Art of Fear, which beautifully explains that fear is not the problem in our lives. It is our avoidance or resistance of fear that's the problem. If you become unwilling to feel or even acknowledge fear and you put it in the basement, a habit that most of us do pretty effectively, that emotion then starts to sabotage your life in either obvious or very covert ways. And Kristen is going to argue that most every problem we now have is tied in some way to our avoidance or resistance of fear. Specifically, she and I are going to cover the many unhealthy ways we avoid fear in our lives, why you shouldn't try to overcome it, but actually create an even stronger relationship with fear. It has definitely changed my perspective on it in significant ways. How we pass on our unhealthy relationship with fear to our children and why your relationship with fear is the most important relationship in your life. Now, before we get to the interview, I just want to take a second and ask you to subscribe and review the show if you get a chance. And please just let folks know that we are back and better than ever. Now, please enjoy this mind-bending conversation with Kristen Ulmer. Kristen, I'm so excited about today's interview. I am afraid that I might mess it up. It's going to be so good. So, Oh, I'm terrified to be here. <laughs> Great. Everybody's afraid uh, to be here. So let's get started. I just want to ask you very quickly, what is your goal around fear? Like, what do you want people to do as a result of interacting with you and your work? 
Well, I teach the radical opposite of what everybody else seems to be teaching about what to do about fear and anxiety. Um, you know, I learned what not to do and what to do about fear through practical experience. I didn't learn about it, you know, by going to school and learning from a professor. I didn't learn from self-help gurus and psychologists, and I'm just repeating all that information. I actually learned through um, making mistakes, you know, and I, I like to say that uh, smart people learn from their mistakes. Really smart people learn from people who learn from their mistakes. And what I've learned is that all the things that we're taught to do regarding fear and anxiety, which I was also taught to do by culture, by my ski coaches, by my parents, by, you know, you name it, it actually hurts people. It's actually not what we should be doing. We should be doing actually the radical opposite. And that's what we're going to discuss today. Okay. I love it. And uh, I love the book. It was uh, an awesome read, and I got to learn so many interesting things about you. I'm I'm excited to to dive in. So, uh, first, how do we assess our current relationship with fear? If if what we're supposed to be doing is the opposite, how do, how do we know how we feel about fear now? Well, fear is a big deal. It's with us from the beginning of our lives to the end. Um, it shows up, proven by science, first as a emotion in your body, a feeling in your body. And it's supposed to flow like water into, through, and out of your body and remain there so long as the threat is there. And then also proven by science, 10 to 90 seconds after the threat is gone, then it too is gone out of your body. And it doesn't show up in your thoughts, you know, so long as you're in flow with that feeling. And it's just, it's kind of like animals, you know, it's supposed to lead to fight, flight, or freeze action. You know, like if Bambi, there's a threat, there's some rustling in the bushes, all of a sudden she fights or she flees or um, she freezes. Like it, it's, it's done in a quick kind of intuitive reaction that has nothing to do with thoughts. Now, humans are a lot more complicated than animals. And so we've gotten in the bad habit of actually starting to think about our fear or talking about it with a therapist or trying to figure it out as a way to ultimately control it, um, as a way to let it go or get rid of it or rationalize it away. We're in our heads dealing with this emotional sensation in our bodies. We're dealing with it intellectually. We've built such a shrine to our big brains and our, our ability to rationalize things or reason things or, you know, that that's how we're dealing with our emotions, which is intellectually. And so what I have people do is learn how to deal with them emotionally, but we'll get to that soon. I would say that getting to know your relationship with fear is the same as getting to know your relationship with yourself because fear is such a huge part of our human experience. And especially if you're doing big things with your lives, like, you know, being a CEO of a major company, having children, getting married, you know, taking risks in any way, you know, I, certainly as a professional athlete, um, risking my life daily, you know, I was an extreme athlete. I was dealing with a lot of fear. You know, we, it's really important that we get to know what our relationship is with this primary emotion that's always flowing through our bodies during any threat. Um, you know, do you ignore it? Do you try to control it? Do you try to rush the process by breathing it away or trying to focus on positivity? Do you drink alcohol to not have to deal with it? Do you eat food whenever it shows up? Like, um, whatever your relationship is with fear basically explains your behaviors. The big one is, um, are you in your head dealing with that emotion intellectually, in which case you're probably living in your head and you're out of touch with your body. And the other big one I see is, do you make yourself so busy 
that you're constantly running away from that feeling. And that if you slow down and kind of take a breath, all of a sudden it catches up to you. Oh my gosh. So getting to know your relationship with fear is definitely where I start with clients and, and uh, because it explains so much. So what are some initial questions that we can ask ourselves to bring our full selves to this conversation uh, to get to know what we usually do? Is it what do you usually do when fear shows up or is it some other kind of questions? Well, it's a process. Like when I work with people, I use a form of voice dialogue where I actually ask to speak to the voice of fear that lives in their body. And then uh, the fear uses um, your brain, your mouth, you know, to communicate on its behalf. And I'll, I'll say, well, you know, how does Diana feel about you? And so that's not something that we can do on a podcast. Sure. Um, so wh- what I do, I don't actually give advice. I just give people an experience so they can exp- um, see what their own advice is. Like, how do I treat this? I call it a child. You can see it as an employee. You can see it as a roommate. Just like, I love to personify fear. And maybe we can do that here is just see it as a person in your life that lives in your body. And just notice, you know, what is my relationship with that feeling of discomfort in my body? And it's kind of a matter of this. I, um, I bought a sat radio and I went out into the mountains once and I turned the thing on and I'm fiddling with it and it's just static, you know, damn thing didn't work. And I brought it back to REI when I got back out of the mountains and I'm like, the damn thing didn't work. And they said, well, did you raise the antenna? I'm like, don't, you know, like, so it's more a matter of just starting off by raising your antenna and being curious about what is my relationship with fear that is supposed to just be in our, my body. Has it, is it showing up in an exaggerated way as anxiety or worry, excessive worry or um, panic even for some people? Is it showing up maybe because I don't want to feel fear? Well, I have to feel something. Maybe I'm feeling anger instead or I'm feeling sadness because I don't want to feel fear. Or is it in my thoughts? Is it waking me up in the middle of the night? Why is that? Like just being curious about your relationship with that fear starts the process. I love it. And part of the process that you have through the book requires the the reader, the audience to make several, I think, radical shifts in their thinking about making this transition. So the first one that I kind of identified was that you need to start thinking of yourself not as one being, but as a corporation with 10,000 employees. Can you dive into that a little bit deeper? Yes. And I mean, there's a lot of analogies in my book. I'm big on analogies. And I use the analogy so far with you on uh, seeing them as 10,000 children, maybe, or we could see them as 10,000 employees or 10,000 roommates. Um, But imagine that you have 10,000, let's call them children now, um, because 10,000 actually is the traditional number in Zen. My training's in Zen. Um, So 10,000 children And half of them you've named love, joy, gratitude, forgiveness. And the other half of your children, you've given names like fear, anger, sadness, despair. Um, Despite your best intention, would you be able to treat them all the same way? Probably not. I mean, we're so conditioned in our society to 
uh, differentiate things that are good versus things that are bad. And so what we tend to do, and especially encouraged by self-help gurus, psychologists, especially right now, is we tend to love and nurture and show off to the world these good children. We have a gratitude practice. We rush to forgiveness as fast as possible. We try to cultivate joy. We choose love over fear, you know, like these are the practices that are popular right now. And then on the other side, we have these bad children, fear, you know, being the big one. And what do we do with these children over here? We, we put duct tape over their mouths, plastic bag over their head, lock them in the basement, throw away the key. We want nothing to do with them. And we think that we can't really be our best selves until and unless we get rid of them. But guess what? They're children in our lives, they're part of our lives, they're, or employees, or their roommates, or, you know, whatever your favorite analogy, like, they deserve to have their rightful place in our lives, and they're actually here to help us, not to hurt us, and we, uh, you know, back to the analogy of it being a child, fear of being a child, if we start to mistreat that child by locking it in the basement, it's going to start acting up. And it's going to start screaming and yelling. And it's going to be really, really hard to keep that child in the basement. And the basement is actually your body. You know, you're now locking that fear in your body. And it's going to show up as anxiety or nervousness. Um, It's going to invade your thoughts. Like, it's just a really, really bad idea to deny the negative its rightful place in our lives. And we lose all depth perception. And we lose our perspective by trying to rush to the positive all the time. And so basically what I teach is um, taking those children out of the basement and seeing all that life has to offer and learning how to treat those negative children in a considerate, respectful way so that they can be an addition to your life instead of something that is dragging you down from the basement. Because there is no getting rid of them. There's no such thing as overcoming fear and then it doesn't bother me anymore, right? Like that's what most people think though, is like if I meditate enough, then it'll be gone. I'll be free from it. Right. What happens, I mean, I see people who are meditating like three, four, five times a day just to function. Um, Meditation is not supposed to be used as treatment for anxiety disorders. It's, It's a beautiful practice. It's not, it, it, we've cheapened it by using it. Yoga, same thing. You know, like if we're, if we're doing all these like exercise, getting out in nature, if you're using these things as a way to feel better, then you've cheapened them, you know, and you've actually, it's a, you see like, you see it as a way, okay, it's how I'm dealing with my fear. It's how I'm dealing with my anxiety. Actually, it's the opposite. These are ways in which you're learning how to not deal with your fear and anxiety. It's like you take a yoga class, you meditate, you feel better. Of course you feel better. But imagine if, you know, you have a fork sticking out of your eye. You know, if you breathe in calm and breathe out pain, of course you're going to feel better. But guess what? you still have a fork sticking out of your eye. Like if you're not deal, if you're using these methods and modalities to not deal with your fear, that fear is going to start to fester and it's going to get worse and worse. And next thing you know, you become addicted to your method and modality because it's the only time that you feel better. And you don't realize that by doing these things, you're actually inadvertently making your problem worse and worse and worse. And eventually a lot of people just get to the point where they give up and they just resort to medication smoking pot or prescription meds. I mean, it's, it's like these things that we are taught to do um, that make us feel better are only temporary band-aids and they actually make the problem worse because when you get home, fear is now really pissed off and it's screaming and yelling 
and it will not be denied. Well, that was me. Uh, so um, my husband uh, served in the military and 12 years ago left with some PTSD that he didn't know was PTSD until very recently. And I uh, got secondary PTSD from a result. And we both had all kinds of trauma that we were not dealing with. And at the time, for a long period of time, I used to say like meditation was the only medicine I could take to not be angry or mean. It was like preventative medication, but that's what I was doing. I was suppressing it without dealing with the underlying issues that were actually in my body and not my brain. So I was trying to fix my brain the whole time. And a friend of mine suggested that I go to something called somatic experience therapy, which is a therapy that deals with getting trauma out of your body and dealing with just what's going on in your body. And I was like, well, that sounds silly. I just want to talk to somebody like I, I didn't even want to try it. And that is when I started learning about the connection uh, and the difference between your brain and, and the wisdom that you have going on in your body. And I think that's one of the other radical shifts that you're asking people to say is one of those uh, children or employees is like your rational thinking brain that kind of is like, a, uh, I think about them like the pundits on TV that talk about what's going on without actually doing any of the work. And we just think that's us when there's so much more information in our body. Yes. And um, people call PTSD, depression, anxiety disorders, mental health issues, but that's not what they are. They're emotional health issues. And emotions are in your body. It's a, it's a issue that you have with the feelings in your body. And then they spill over. It's like, like these, let's talk about PTSD, for example. So let's say two people go to Paris and they see the Louvre and they go, the Eiffel Tower, right? And they, then they both get mugged, you know, the last day in Paris and they come home and one of them, it's all they can talk about. They're all jacked up and excited and like, oh my gosh, I got mugged. And you, and anybody that listens to them like, oh my gosh, you got mugged. Cause just being around fear, you know, is really exciting. And, and, um, it becomes like the highlight of their trip and, and they wind up learning so much about themselves and the nature of human life. And, well, then the other person comes back and they're afraid of leaving the house and they have PTSD. You know, what's the difference between these two people? Well, it comes back to conditioning from childhood on how you deal with your negative emotions. So when you get mugged, of course, you're going to be afraid. You're going to be angry. Um, you're going to be upset. So if you're in flow with them, like see them as like these 10,000 droplets of water through a hose and your body is the hose and here comes fear, here comes frustration, here, whatever. And they flow into, through and out of your body. And then once the threat is over, they're gone 10 to 90 seconds later. But if you don't want to feel them, if you want to get rid of them, if you want, if you try to breathe them away, if you um, have been conditioned, certainly in the military, we look at these soldiers in basic training with the, the sergeant screaming at them and they're just standing there stoically, you know, soldiers are trained to just go numb or blank out when it comes to emotions. No wonder there's a lot of soldiers that come home with PTSD. But we're also taught this in our society. We see them and we think there's something wrong with them that we feel them. We're not supposed to be feeling this. We want to get rid of it. Um, we kink the hose. And all of a sudden, that fear, that anger, that frustration just gets stuck in your body and starts recirculating round and round and round and starts messing up your life 
physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, you name it. So that's what PTSD is. And so they're just stuck there, round and round and round. Um, By then talking and thinking about it, we're now in our heads. And we're back to what I talked about before is where we see these as mental health issues, but see this as water flowing through a hose. And when the water gets trapped, you know, it winds up flooding out into any available place, kind of like trapped water will, namely into your thoughts. And then you have fearful thoughts and that leads to more emotion in your body, which leads to more fearful thoughts. And it becomes super cyclical until your whole world is about just recirculating this trauma and the emotions around it in your body and your mind. So how you get out of that habit is you unkink the hose. You learn how to feel those emotions in an honest way. You don't necessarily have to go back and relive the trauma that happened however long ago, but just learning how to have an honest, considerate relationship with those feelings in your body and learning how to listen to them and feel them and... uh And I'll just finish by saying there's four basic ways to deal with those emotions in your body, and I'll rank them from worst way to best. The worst way is resistance to them, which we're specifically taught in our culture. The second way is you learn how to accept them, which is a step in the right direction, but we're still not there. The third way, and this is where I kind of leave off the rest of my peers. Um, This is very new. This is completely different and unexpected. Um, the third way is you embrace them, like embracing that child. Um, and embracing for me means learning how to feel your emotions. And then the fourth level, and this is where it gets really interesting. And this is why, um, MDMA trials, you know, taking ecstasy to cure PTSD works so well, because this MDMA gives you an even brief, even, even a single moment of this fourth level can turn around PTSD on a dime, whereas you have intimacy with your emotions. And actually that intimacy with your emotions is what I experienced during my ski career. I became intimate with my fear and the fear actually took me into higher states of flow or the zone and helped me be a magnificent athlete. And maybe that's what we can talk about more next. Yeah, I would love it. Um, I, I feel like most people were like me. I thought that my body was really just a vessel to carry my brain around. Like it was totally useless from the neck down and that all of the wisdom happens in in my brain. And I actually heard a great interview this week where somebody talked about how your body is a much older system than your brain. So the functioning brain, the rational brain is only like a couple hundred thousand years old, maybe a million years old, whereas the human body has been around for millions and millions and millions of years. And that's like having this high powered laptop that you don't even open. You use it like a placemat for your meals. You know, like you have this super powerful machine that you don't even access the wisdom of. And the example they gave was like, if you break a bone in your body, your body can heal itself within a couple of weeks. If somebody says something mean to you and impacts your rational brain, you're done. Like you'll, you'll be thinking about that for the rest of your life because your rational brain just isn't as advanced as your body. So thinking about them as separate objects and what they have to offer can be really, really powerful for people. 
Yes, your brain is not an it, it's a we. There's all these different components to it. And um, starting from the basic, like down buried deepest is the amygdala, which is the manufacturing plant for fear. And then it kind of expands out. And actually, this is very interesting, but the neocortex, the outermost and largest part of the brain, is only a few thousand years old. And it's kind of that expansive part of who we are as human beings. And it's the reason, you know, because the development of this brain only happened a few thousand years ago, it's the reason why almost all uh, religions or spiritual traditions in the world are only a few thousand years old, because it's the first time that we've actually been able to have that kind of bigger curiosity. The brain is, we do worship it like a god. We really do. But all of our intuitive states actually exist in the body. If you actually learn how to have an intimate relationship with your fear, you learn how to access your intuition and instinct. Dogen Zenji, a great Zen master, said one time, enlightenment is intimacy with all things. We don't use the word enlightenment anymore. We use the word flow. So flow is intimacy with all things. Can you learn how to have an intimate relationship with all of the droplets of water flowing through your body, an intimate relationship with all of your children, and see the wisdom that all of them have to offer you? That was the best definition of flow that I've ever read, which is like all of your, um, you know, you talk about how each of these 10,000 children or employees, they're all doing different things at all times. And whenever you get stuck, it's because they're disagreeing and they're pulling you in different directions. But flow is when all of them are going in the same direction, like water. And I was like, oh, that's exactly what that is. Nobody's disagreeing. Everybody's like, oh, this is what we're doing. And uh, it's an it's an incredible feeling. Um, one of the other really interesting things that you pointed out is that society really likes us to feel kind of neutral. Like they don't want extremes in either direction. They don't want you to feel afraid or any of those bad feelings, but they also don't really want you to feel the good feelings. So the example you gave is like Tom Cruise gets excited on Oprah's couch and everybody's like, he's insane. And in my personal life, you know, whenever somebody asks me how I'm doing, many times I'm doing fantastic. And that's what I say. And it really puts people off. Like they always take a step back and they're like, oh, well, show off. And I'm like, no, it's just how I feel. And and people, people don't like that. They like us to be good or okay. And that tones down feelings in both directions, right? Well, when you're asked, how am I feeling? If you're feeling fantastic, it, it's wonderful to be able to say that and not be shamed for it. But if you're feeling crummy, yes, <laughs> you know, it's wonderful to be able to say that. And if, you know, if somebody says, I feel fantastic every time I see them, I'm not going to believe them. Yeah. But if they are fantastic sometimes and they feel crummy other times, then I'm going to be more inclined to believe them. Um, you know, we are up to 10,000 things a day and uh, up to, and I love it when people say, oh my gosh, that guy's an ass, right? And maybe they just met him, but maybe he was an ass in that moment, but the next moment could have been a completely different emotional response. He could have been a lovely human being. It's like, we are constantly changing. And the Buddha is very famous for saying a lot of things, but the thing that he's probably most famous for saying is um, just talking about the impermanent nature of life, you know, the impermanent nature of who we are. Um, and the other thing I want to talk to you about what you just said is 
that we have become a world of emotion shamers. We just shame each other for what we feel. You know, if you're just kind of anything other than what, uh, you know, just bland, blank, um, <laughs> or, or in some societies, if you're not positive, like, let me give you an example. I had a stalker and I had, I went through this horrible experience. Um, he wound up in jail and it was all over the news. And, um, about three weeks later, I ran into a friend of mine who's a life coach. And he said, how are you feeling about that? And I said, well, I'm really angry. And he said, oh, oh, you sh- can't be angry. That's toxic. It's going to eat you from the inside out. And I'm like, don't try to rush me through my emotions so that you can feel more comfortable. <laughs> right? right. I mean, he didn't feel comfortable with anger. And so we, you know, we're just shaming each other for our negative emotions in particular. And we're even shaming each other for our positive emotions. Like if you're, you know, like jumping for joy onto a couch on Oprah, like Tom Cruise did, they're, you're seen as mentally unstable. It's crazy. Uh, and women tend to be able to feel emotions more readily. You know, like we, we have PhDs in feeling our emotions. I feel bad for men because they, you know, they're, they've gotten to the point where the only emotion that they're allowed to feel is anger. And so that's oftentimes all that they feel. And a lot of them feel numb. And um, as a result, you know, statistically, a lot more men commit suicide. It's like they're not allowed to feel anything. And then women who are super successful, you know, are also not allowed to feel anything. You know, otherwise they're too emotional. God forbid a women presidential candidate were to get emotional about something or get upset, you know, on camera, then she would be seen as... um, not fit to be president. So it's like we are just a culture of really shaming each other and trying to manage and control and manipulating to the point where emotional intelligence is seen as our ability to manage and control our emotions. It's it's ridiculous. And it, no wonder we have such escalating emotional health crisis issues that are only getting worse. Why do you think we shame each other so much for the extremes of feelings? Like, where do you think that comes from? It comes from um, just a long history of, you know, your parents and your parents' parents and your parents' parents. I mean, you look at pictures from the like 1920s, I think it is, and everybody just looks stoic in the photos. (laughs) And most of the time they're just hiding their bad teeth, right? But they also, we come from a long history of just emotionless people. You know, my husband, um, he's uh, from a rural town in Montana, was raised a farmer. I mean, his parents are just stoic emotionally. And it's only just now that we're starting to learn how to feel our emotions in an honest way. Um, And on top of that, overpopulation, just world getting crazier, more happens in 24 minutes than happened in our grandparents' era in 24 years. Like, we have a lot of fear. Like there's a lot going on and the amygdala is cranking out fear faster than Joey Chestnut eats a hot dog, right? So we have all this fear, all this fear, all this fear. We don't know how to deal with it. We're going numb in the face of it. And I don't want to deal with my fear. I don't want to deal with your fear. Nobody wants to deal with anybody's fear. And so, I mean, it's just, it's turned into a chaos. And, and so we're all hiding. We're all pretending. We put these masks on. 
And then it gets cyclical because we teach our children to do this too. You know, and little Johnny says when he's five years old, I'm scared. And what does mommy and daddy say? There's nothing to be scared of. Right. Even though I'm petrified, I go, I go downstairs and eat ice cream to my own issues. <laughs> right. Which is one way to not deal with your fear. Yeah. Right. Um, we've definitely taught, uh, well, we've definitely learned that one too. Alcohol, <laughs> food, right. Booze, uh, pills. Um, so it sends a message to little Johnny that it's not okay to feel fear. You know, we say things like it's just false evidence appearing real. Um, we say that it's an enemy and something to be fought. It, it sends a message to little Johnny that if he wants mommy and daddy's and society's approval, then he has to get rid of his fear, which he then tries to do. He can't. The best he can do is lock it in the basement and then it terrorizes his life from there. And every time he feels it, which is all the time, he has a self-esteem issue It, it and he starts to mistrust the fear um, so he loses touch with his intuition and uh, and he loses touch with his body to go numb. I mean, it, just that one very well-meaning sentence from parents saying there's nothing to be afraid of just sets the trajectory of little Johnny on course to having a really, really difficult life. Well, as a parent, I'm very curious, what is the other way to help your kids to break the cycle of parents and grandparents and great-great-grandparents and help your children have a healthy relationship with fear. The thing to say to little Johnny when he says, I'm afraid, you say, well, life is really scary and I feel afraid too. So let's be afraid together. That's it, period. Not like, but comma, oh, but you don't want to let it get the better of you because see fear like, a person in your life, you know, like I keep going back to, um, see fear as maybe another child in the room. And maybe well, little Johnny is like, hey, my friend fear is here. What do we do? I'm all like, well, let's hang out with him. Let's get to know him. Let's be curious about him. Um, however you treat fear is actually how you treat yourself. So taking it into adulthood, you know, your relationship with fear is the most important relationship of your life because it's the relationship that you have with yourself at your core. So you want to not only give little Johnny the best chance he has of having a great relationship with his fear, you know, his roommate or whatever analogy you want to use, um, because he's going to be growing up with that person, that being. It's going to be around him all the time. And he'll either... Uh, through his actions, turns that fear, that person in his life into his biggest enemy that's just screaming at him and trying to drag him down and destroy his life or turn him into his Robin, stronger together than apart. You know, so however you treat fear is how you treat yourself at your core. However you treat fear is how you treat this person in your life. And it determines so much. It determines whether you're going to do great, take risks, and feel great while taking those risks. And the fear is here to help you. And you're tapping into intuition. And you're in touch with your body. And you're in flow with your emotions. And drop by drop, you become a mighty river. Or if you treat that person, that entity, that being poorly, you will devote your life to being at war with it. And ultimately, that being, that creature will win. 
because it's been around for millions and millions of years, a lot longer than you have, and it is way smarter than you. And um, if you treat it poorly, it's only going to treat you poorly in return. If you're at war with it, you know, you're at war with yourself and it leaves fear no choice but to fight back. And um, next thing you know, you're at war with other people too. I mean, it's just the, the, the ramifications of having a compromised relationship with fear are profound and vast to the point where if you have any kind of issue in your life, I can guarantee either your relationship, if it's compromised with fear, either has something or it has everything to do with it. So emotional it, or physical, right? Yes. Physical, big time you know, like that lower back pain. We, we mm-hmm. know there's some emotional component to it, you know. Um, and, you know, whether or not you get sick a lot, you know, there's, there's an emotional component to that too. You know, is your body compromised? Have you created like the ideal host environment for illness, cancer, whatever, Parkinson's to get triggered, to thrive, all of that. You know, if you trap those emotions in your body, that's kind of the, the system that you've created um, a compromised uh, a system. So um, there's a long way of saying you want to learn how to be <laughs> in flow with your fear because that way you will be healthy. You know, if you have a healthy flowing relationship with fear, you're a healthy person. And that's the one second sound point bite. If you have a healthy relationship with fear, you are a healthy person. It takes a lot of effort to fight and deny fear out of your life. And it also requires effort to make friends with and become intimate with fear. But I promise you, it's a heck of a lot less effort than fighting a war with it your whole life and all the consequences that ensue from that. And the effort really starts with um, taking the first step of just wanting to identify what is your relationship with fear. Um, It's probably different than what you think is what I've seen. So putting that antenna up, you know, being curious about that and how you do that is you can close your eyes right now. We can do it together. Let's do it. And I want you to find where you feel fear in your body and don't get too caught up on the word fear, just any kind of discomfort, emotional or otherwise, even if you have like lower back pain, that could be you know, where your fear is living. But where is it? Is it showing up as anger maybe? Is it showing up as sadness? Is it in your thoughts? Just notice where it seems to be, any kind of discomfort. In my chest? And then notice, oh, your chest. Okay, so put your hand on your chest. Yep. Notice what is your relationship with that feeling? Do you ignore it? Do you try to fight it? Do you try to breathe it out? Do you hope that it's like CO2 and it's actually something you can breathe out? I assure you it's not. (laughs) Do you try to calm it down? And if so, see that it's like a a kid that's upset and saying, oh, no, no, let's let's rush to calm. You know, you don't want to do that. You want to just let that kid be upset, you know, for as long as it takes. So just notice if you're trying to rush to positivity or if you're trying to, if you run away from it, if you eat food whenever it shows up, if you make yourself so busy so you don't have to feel it. The noticing is the most important part. You know, am I in resistance to this feeling in any way? 
And there's an equation, suffering equals discomfort times resistance. That discomfort is innate. It's a normal, natural part of life. But your resistance to it actually is what causes problems with it. Because if you have a discomfort of a level 10, let's say you're going through a breakup or your, your business is failing, you know, because of COVID-19, you know, of course you're going to feel that discomfort. But if you're in resistance to it, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are, like, let's say your discomfort is a level 10 and your resistance is also a level 10, 10 times 10, that's a whole lot of suffering. You know, the resistance is actually the awful feeling that we associate with discomfort and not the discomfort itself. Because if you have a level 10 discomfort, but your resistance is zero, which is what happens when you have an intimate relationship with that, there's no suffering, 10 times zero, right? So just noticing what is my relationship with my discomfort just is huge. That's where we start. That's awesome. Yep. And as for getting into a flowing relationship with it, it's a matter of changing your language around discomfort, talking about fear, not in such a derogatory way, but an inclusive way, Um, not only to yourself, to your children, to the people around you, Um, starting to listen to your fear, starting to ask it questions. You know, what wisdom does it, is it here to offer me? Juicing that wisdom like an orange. Um, It's a process, but it, always starts with that curiosity. What is my relationship with this feeling of discomfort in my body? Kristen, thank you so much. Where can people find out more about you, engage with you, just get more, more of this goodness? My website, kristenolmer.com, I have a free fear and anxiety assessment. It's a fascinating series of 20 questions that give you insights as you're answering the questions. And then um, you identify which of three types you are, um, a resistor, a paradox, or somebody who actually embraces their fear. And then I give you a lot of practical advice from there to get you started on your journey. So please just go to my website, take the free fear and anxiety assessment. It'll just open your eyes to what your unique relationship is with fear that you probably are not sure of that lives under your radar. And also my book, The Art of Fear is a great resource as well. It's an incredible book. I would love to share it out to as many people as I can. It's awesome. Okay. Well, thank you for having me on. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because we're starting to see that people are more willing to feel discomfort, like with Wim Hof, with the cold breathing exercises, like if you have no resistance to cold, it takes you into a heightened state of awareness. I see this with pain, you know, like people who get tattoos, if they completely become intimate with the pain, it takes them into a higher state of awareness. Um, Sadness breaks open our heart to love and compassion for each other. If you become intimate with your anger, you right a wrong. Like if we can become intimate with all of those negative children that we're used to locking in the basement, taking them out and having a healthy, flowing, loving, considerate relationship with them, I promise you, you will be unstoppable. And it's what I did during my ski career that made me the best in the world at a very difficult sport for as long as I was, you know, 12 years in a row is a long time, right? Um, This is what I did right. And this is what I'm teaching people. And this is something that you can learn yourself. And I believe this is the future for us all because it has to be. I mean, what we've been doing hasn't been working. So there you have it. (laughs) Kristen, thanks so much. Thank you. 
hope you enjoyed that conversation half as much as I did. I know that this book and Kristen have changed my relationship with fear in significant ways. And I would love to hear uh, your favorite parts of the episode. You can either tweet or Instagram with me online. I'm at Diana Kander on most platforms, or you can join our Facebook group, Professional AF Podcast Insiders, where we'll go much deeper into each of the topics covered in every episode. We'd love to see you there. Thank you so much for listening, and I'm so excited to hear your feedback on the show. Remember, curiosity is your superpower. Be sure to use yours today. Today.